You're listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row with the number seven spelled out or online at seventh-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-Row.com. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the uh, 2008 production, but I think it was actually filmed in 2009, of uh, Hamlet by the Royal Shakespeare Company, starring David Tennant and directed by Greg Doran. Uh, we have several guests on today, and so we're going to have them all introduce themselves. Uh, we have Craig Rattan. Hi there, Craig Rutan, Torontonian theater enthusiast. I'm on Twitter at CRUT, C-R-U-T. And Caitlin Merriman. Hi, I'm Caitlin Merriman, just general Twitter commentator and snarker, uh, found at, at, at uh, Caitlin Snark on Twitter. And Mariangela Rowe. Hi, I'm Mariangela. I'm a contributing editor at The Seventh Row, and you can find me on Twitter at Lapsed Victorian. And Noemi Berkowitz. Hi, I'm Noemi. I'm a actor, director, and Shakespeare lover. And I'm um, Alex Heaney, your host. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Seventh Row, and you can find me on Twitter at bwestcineast. That's B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E. So, what did you all think about the uh, David Tennant, Greg Duran Hamlet? I, it's the production, I saw it once a few years ago and rewatched it again recently. And it's the production of Hamlet that really like opened up Hamlet for me that I, I've, it's always been terrifying. It's still a terrifying play, but um, this production really just, it was like, it was like when I watched um, Bren as much ado, it was just the first time that the language really meant something and all of the characters kind of came together and yeah. Yeah. It's a big difference from the Lindsay Turner production. <laughs> <laughs> can you give me an example caitlin i'm sorry i don't mean to sound um, like a teacher here but no no um it's uh just sort of the way you can uh, the line readings are so good that it's just it's like with brenner's in that you hear these people saying these words and in hamlet it's like real like so many uh words and lots of incredible language but it sounds natural it sounds like those are the words that they found in that moment to express themselves rather than just feeling a little bit like being recited um and it's so hard i think with hamlet to do that because we all know so many of the phrases and speeches and like there's so many little bits of language that we use all the time that sort of come from that play so it's really it's hard to make it sound fresh and like it's it's just happening in the moment and um yeah I think this production really I felt that all the way through there was no moment of it feeling sort of stale and and like a recital and like I mean they have a really strong supporting cast Polonius his line readings are amazing and um Patrick Stewart I really like his Claudius it's like unlike any other Claudius I've seen Mm-hmm. Um, apparently he'd actually played Claudius before and wanted a second go at it. So this is his second go at Claudius. And I think, I mean, I have some problems with David Tennant's performance, but I think one thing that he does really well is he has a lot of vocal range. Um, and so I feel like, yeah, I just like every line sings. It's not like there's one line where you don't know what's going on. Like clearly the actors know what they're saying and then they're elucidating it. I could have done without his overemphasis on country matters, but (laughs) (laughs) like modern audiences aren't going to get it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) He really, really like country matters. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I kind of liked it. It was very, uh, it was a little moment of classic English humor for, (laughs) for the audience. Um, Yeah. 
it's so it's such a David Tennant thing to do as well, I think. Okay, Amy, you've been really silent about what you think about this production. Oh, I actually quite liked it. I I really liked it, especially visually. I thought it was a visually interesting production. And talking about cunt rematters, <laughs> one of the more interesting parts of that production for me was the relationship between Hamlet and Ophelia, which was done like slightly differently than I'd ever seen it. Yeah. Because even, I mean, in that scene in particular, even after he's screamed at her, you know, to a nunner, get thee to a nunnery go in that scene, there's still a genuine affection and warmth between them. Yeah. I mean, to me, this is the only production I've ever seen where I think they, they actually feel like they're exes. Like, that they were actually together. <laughs> and, of course, did they point? The answer is yes, very much yes, absolutely, totally yes. It's 100%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Glad we got that sorted. Remy, what do you think? Yeah, I thought it was really engaging. At first, I was like, okay, this is three hours. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I've seen a lot of Hamlets. But I think... One interesting thing they brought to it, there were a lot of really cool visual things and it was really visually dynamic with the lighting at the beginning, the surveillance cameras throughout. And I thought a really neat thing um, was sort of like it felt like it was a stage adaptation in some fun ways for someone with a theater background. Like there were some really goofy things. Honestly, the play within a play was almost too much. Like, it was so silly. But it also, <laughs> like, they were having fun. And it didn't feel like it was just 100% like angst, angst, angst the whole time. So that was that was welcome. I mean, I think the couple things that I think really stand out about this production to me. The first is that I think a lot of Hamlet sort of lose steam at about Act 4. This like, one pays out of yeah, like they run out of ideas and then you're just sort of waiting for everyone to die. Like when the stage is full of rubble. But <laughs> I think what I really like about this one is to me, like it's not until, you know, like act four that Claudius really starts to reveal himself. Like you really like, you know, he's, he's actually quite likable at the beginning. He's very charming. He seems quite lovely to Gertrude. I mean, there's obviously something wrong and off, but. You know, he's he's quite lovely, and it's not until you see, you know, like, Hamlet in a chair with, like, practically being, look like he's about to be tortured and with the, and sent off to England, and they, they stab him with a, a needle, that you sort of start to see Claudius's underbelly, and I think part of that, too, is everybody kind of becomes increasingly dis- disheveled and distressed mm-hmm. in the last two acts, except for Claudius, who still looks perfect in his perfect tailored suit like Gertrude's given up on her wig and and is like barely dressed and you know Ophelia has gone nuts um and so she has stopped wearing clothes sometimes um, <laughs> but Claudius is like the is like keeping it together without any effort and that's like part of how you know he's like really quite a creepy presence yeah um, yeah and that felt like very human and also not very, not mustache twirling, which is often a problem with Claudius is they're like, he's such a villain and not that he isn't a villain, but he's more, much more complex than that. I think in this. And so to me, that was a really big, big thing. And the other, which is, this is part of a bigger thing that they do in the play is I think this is the first Hamlet where I really felt like there's an echo of what used to be and that, like you get glimpses at what Hamlet once what who Hamlet once was, what his relationship with Ophelia once was, what his relationship with Denmark once was, the like affection he once had with his mother. And you get to see now and then like the old Hamlet come back, whether it's as, like the bratty prince who wants to give instructions to the players and they're just rolling their eyes at him. Or, you know, when he has moments of genuine affection with Ophelia or that like desperate hug that he and his mother have after um, he kills Polonius. Like, there's all these sort of glimpses that you could sort of see that his world, that basically by killing his father, it's like his whole world has gotten turned upside down. He used to have a mother and a girlfriend and a, a place in Denmark, and now he's just sort of lost it all. So I think, to me, that it did a really good job of setting that up and showing how things have changed 
for everyone that like this small, seemingly small thing, the king has been killed is like, has turned everybody's lives upside down. Yeah. I think you see that with Gertrude um, when, when, you know, she's like, no, I will not see her about Ophelia, but Ophelia comes in, where's the beauty's majesty of Denmark. And she's, you know, going crazy. And you just see Gertrude, like, like, what has happened to this place? Like, what is going on around me? Like, everything has gone to shit. Like, all of the young people in my life are going crazy. And, like, she is just, like, losing her handle on everything. <laughs> and I feel like I felt that more acutely in this production than I have in other ones. It's not just like, oh, this is the way the plot goes, but everything is different now. Yeah. I, uh, you know, the most recent production I saw was uh, the Benedict Cumberbatch Hamlet. And this just felt like a breath of fresh air in comparison. Uh, I mean, I think there's lots to pick apart and dissect. I want to talk about some of the specific choices. But overall, like, I I felt like the production gave space for the actors to really explore the characters and didn't get in the way by trying to do anything too fancy. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's this striking contrast between, like, here are all our ideas to basically mostly empty stage and no props, with very few exceptions. Yeah. But it didn't feel self-consciously minimalist either. And watching the film version really made me wonder how it would have looked on stage. Because the one thing that I don't think the camera could capture particularly well was that mirrored floor. Right? Mm. And I kept wondering, how would this look to someone who was actually there? And we were talking about this a little bit earlier. But I really wonder how they conveyed the really heavy surveillance state overtones in the stage production. I'm not, pardon me. I was just going to say, I thought that was one of the most effective parts of the the film. And you're right. I, I'm not sure how that would convey itself on screen. Does no, no one knows. Do we, I guess we don't. I, I am two hours into the audio commentary um, with Greg Doran and that has not been revealed. I will say, I think that there are ways that it can be, that it could have been effective on stage without us seeing that same thing. For example, when Hamlet takes down that surveillance camera and knocks it to the floor and then starts his Now I Am Alone, which had an entirely different meaning than any time I've ever seen it because of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of the most effective ways it was used. Obviously, it's not the same thing visually on stage as on screen, but that's still a way in which it was really effective. Do you think that would have made a difference if you, like, didn't notice the cameras before and then, then you suddenly see that and then that sort of changes how you saw the first? Well, so they had the, the cameras sort of making noise and rotating at various points, which is so you saw him noticing it. Mm. So I feel like they probably would have made a point of us being aware of them earlier. It seemed like they would have been noticeable. But that's just speculation. Yeah. yeah particularly is. during Get Thee to a Nunnery, it was another key moment there. So. Right, right. Yeah. I'm also, I'm not sure how they would have translated because he starts filming things and filming himself. Or right, starting with the, the, when the players are there, he starts filming the players and he starts filming Claudius's and Gertrude's reaction to that. It's not entire. I think they did that on stage, though it was kind of confusing in the commentary trying to figure that out. And I'm not sure how that would have worked on stage. I saw a version of Henry V at Stratford where they had everything that the boy says he says to a camera hmm. um, as though he's documenting it as opposed to speaking directly to the audience. And how they dealt with that was they had a, a feed between the camera on stage and a screen up above, almost like surtitles. Yeah. So, you know, they could have done that. I just think that would, that would work a lot better for Hamlet's recording than for the surveillance cameras, I think. Right. I mean, they did that with the, the Richard III with Kevin Spacey that was directed by Sam Mendes. They also, when he was giving his speech, there was like a projection, I think, at the back to let you know that he was being recorded. And I think there were people with cameras there, too, to show that. Yeah, I'm not sure quite how they did it on stage, but I think regardless of that, they certainly used the various types of cameras very effectively. And I think that's a benefit of the film adaptation. It seems like we might be brainstorming ways they could have done it on stage, but this was smoothly done and allowed us to be pointed at what is the security camera looking at? What is Hamlet looking at? And what is he choosing to record and not record? 
Um, for example, when he chooses to record his own soliloquy, the from this time on, my thoughts be bloody or be nothing worth. That's the first time he's turning the camera on himself, I think. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's I think that's an advantage of the film adaptation, and I think they use it very strongly as a counterpoint. Or, well, not necessarily counterpoint, but like you're right that that's the first moment that he turns the camera on himself. But there are moments when Hamlet is breaking the fourth wall and is speaking directly to the camera and Mm -hmm. where if that were in a play, he'd be speaking directly to the audience. But since it's being filmed, there's not that clear distinction between when Hamlet is breaking the fourth wall versus when he's filming himself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that worked better on stage and doesn't actually translate that well to when you're turning it into a TV film. That's true. Also because it's not like it's, um, Kevin Spacey and House of Cards type thing where he's the only one who's doing that because Polonius, when he has some asides, also looks directly into the camera and it weirdly gives him this power. And I'm like, you're Polonius. Like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I think I agree. It's And it's kind of confusing. On the one hand, what's good about it is because it draws so much attention to itself. I'd never really thought about the fact that the only people who really get major asides are... Polonius and and Hamlet. I guess Gertrude has like one brief one and Claudius has one brief one, but Polonius and Hamlet are the only ones that get multiple asides. But uh, on the other hand, because there's a camera and because the camera keeps sort of changing point of views, like it's the ghost at the beginning. And then, and then, you know, you have Polonius speaking to the camera and Hamlet speaking to the camera. I got really confused about like, who is the camera supposed to be? Where are we? Whose shoes are we in? And, Part of it was like, well, this is effective in the sense that I can imagine, like, you know, you need to have a way so that I can imagine what it would be like if you were on stage, but you're not on stage, you're on a film and you're deliver. you know, they do things like have voiceover on occasion. I'm just not sure it was like a completely clear translation. The moment when Hamlet comes up behind Claudius while he's praying and he's monologuing, and then all of a sudden it switched into voiceover. Yeah. That was super weird. It felt really inconsistent and out of nowhere. And then he, you know, runs away and goes back to not voiceovering and just telling us his thoughts. And I was like, I do not know how to feel about this. Yeah. yeah and then it was really... Some, sorry. Just one quick annotation is that... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I think that was sort of funny in the audio commentary is they were like really proud of the fact that he started going into voiceover. But I think it's something that everybody found jarring. Yeah. I think what they were trying to go for was he can't monologue normally right now because he's standing right behind Claudius. But that makes no sense because other at other points in the play, people will do asides right in front of, like Polonius does, do asides right in front of other people and there's no sense that anyone else can hear him. So, yeah, I don't know. It was a very strange choice that moment. Well, I had one more thing that I wanted to harp about in terms of how this was turned into a film, which Mm -hmm. was in all of the throne room scenes, it felt like you were filming a play, you know, the blocking was theater blocking and you could tell it was theater blocking because when they did a close up on someone, it felt like they were doing a still shot and there was stuff going on in the background that I was supposed to be seeing. And it just, it, it felt like someone had, filmed a stage play which is of course what they did except that they made adaptations to television which in some places were really successful like in that stairwell scene which which the stairwell scene where where claudius goes down that really dank and dingy stairwell and then they wheel hamlet in in the chair and this is like some it's clearly some back room yeah you know and on stage that would probably be in the throne room or in some set that's been used for other parts of the castle but in that adaptation by, by putting it in this like disused stairwell, it makes it clear that A, there's some dirty business going down and B, Claudius knows exactly where this is. He's used this place before. And in just that one setting choice, it adds a whole new dimension to the character, which is a really effective choice that they could only do in a, in a, in a recording, you know? Yeah. There's also that sort of nice symbol that like what goes on underneath and that because that's sort of Claudius' whole thing is he's got this nice veneer of you know, diplomacy and politeness and charm, but, you know, send him to the basement and things get ugly. Another thing I think worked really well in terms of the using film was 
the, I mean, obviously we've got the uh, lots of different types of lenses, like cameras observing people, but there's also this great like reflection motif all the way through it. So lots of like obviously the reflective surface of the floor in the in the lobby of the throne room, and lots of mirrors, and of course. I think the way it was filmed, they had a couple of moments where they could really use those mirrors um, to have really like just beautifully composed shots, um, especially uh, at the end of the closet scene with Hamlet and Gertrude, where there's just you can see Hamlet looking down at Polonius and you can also see Gertrude looking very small reflected back at us. And of course, the, uh, the so marvelously unsubtle metaphor of the giant cracked mirror uh, that oversees the whole sort of end of the play. And, um, and of course, in the, in the little downstairs back room scene with Claudius and Hamlet at the end, Claudius delivers his little monologue into the cracked mirror. And I really loved that. I thought, I mean, it was, it was very in your face, but I thought it was, it was beautifully done. But is that really bad? Like this is, this is a play of big characters who do big things. I mean, I was watching it. And I thought to myself, if Shakespeare were writing today, he'd probably be writing telenovelas, right? <laughs> yeah. These are huge plots full of murder and incest. And you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just going to say, speaking of incest, like, I would be curious to hear people's thoughts on the Laertes Ophelia relationship and the Gertrude Hamlet relationship, just because some productions push those boundaries more than others. What did people think about those relationships? You know, there's that quick chaste kiss on the lips between Laertes and Ophelia. What are people's thoughts on that? Uh, the him jumping into the grave and, and like grabbing her bodily and pulling her out of it was the <laughs> slightly creepy over the top incest moment for me with Laertes and Ophelia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But there's like very passionate arguing between him and Hamlet about, I loved her more. No, I loved her more. Yeah. 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 I still feel like this was one of the least weird productions for <laughs> for incest. Like I like I mean obviously there are some undertones there, but other ones like you know really go for it. And particularly Hamlet and Gertrude, I thought was like a a you know twisted but fairly normal mother son relationship. Like I mean the the scene in uh, you know in the bedroom in her uh, in her closet was. I mean, you you sort of see the the strength and power that he that he brings, and that he's a little unhinged. But you know, there's I didn't get any incestual undertones or overtones there. Should disagree completely. <laughs> uh, Caitlin earlier was talking about how compelling she found Gertrude in this production, and for me, one of the line readings one of the like teeny weeny little line readings that made a huge difference was for me, the first time Gertrude says Hamlet's name, you know, literally the first words she utters to Hamlet, she goes up to him. She like smooths down his lapels very tenderly and says Hamlet. And that's the first time it clued in. That's his dad's name too. That's the first time it ever like hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh, right. This is the same person. And they have the same person playing Hamlet senior and Claudius. This is the first production in which I felt like it's not that Gertrude is in love with Claudius. It's that Gertrude was so in love with Hamlet Sr. that she's looking for a replacement Hamlet. And she's got two of them. And she needs both of them. Yeah. Yeah, she's really interesting kind of. I um, I just, I her whole performance I love. I mean, it helps that uh, the actress Penny Downey is one of my favorites. But um, she's got so many little moments like that where just a little tiny look or a way of saying a word just gives away a whole bunch about her character, I think. Um, but she's still quite enigmatical as well. Like I love how nervous she is in the first, in the, the court scene. She just keeps kind of looking around to see how people are reacting to things. And of course, when Claudius looks at Hamlet as if he's about to address him and then doesn't and addresses Laertes instead and she just looks like uh oh, this is a really bad idea and um the little whisper in his ear and and so that also, she like, can convince him funny. we talked about this yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely and yeah I thought the uh closet scene was really interesting because I think I think what I think is really uncomfortable dynamic between her and Hamlet in that scene obviously because he's being a giant misogynistic jerk but um 
also just because she's like it opens with her taking her wig off and she's got smeary makeup and she's wearing slinky satin PJs and smoking a cigarette and drinking whiskey. And it's got this real kind of like Blanche Dubois sort of faded glamour kind of thing to it. And having Hamlet come in in his suit, it just, yeah, she's, she's sort of her sexuality is being highlighted in that scene. So it's really weird to see her sort of, a uh, dynamic with Hamlet, I think, on top of that. But I don't think they push the creepy incest line in the same way that they do with Laodice. You have an opinion? <laughs> I do. I have a creepy <laughs> So on that scene, especially talking about costumes in that scene, we've got Gertrude in this in these sleeky pajamas, which are not, you know, they're not sexy pajamas, but she's obviously braless. And we have Hamlet coming in with no jacket and with his bow tie undone. They roll around on the bed a whole bunch. He flings his arms around her and sobs like a child, but in a way that's also very intimate. He kisses her on the lips, leaves. Claudius comes in with no jacket, with his tie undone, exactly the, nearly exactly the same costume choice. Gertrude seems perfectly comfortable in her jammies around the two of them. But then two other men come in, and she just, she instantly covers up and turns away. You know, the people she's comfortable seeing her in this state of sexualized semi-undress are her son and her husband. If that, who are incidentally dressed almost identically in that scene. Those are some incest vibes. So that's an interesting note on the, on the matching costumes, but I would argue that it, to me, it, I didn't get any sexy vibes off her. I just got a big sense of vulnerability uh, in terms of, you know, like taking the wig off, being in the, you know, very revealing nightgown. I just saw her as, as very vulnerable and weak. And that's why I, I guess that's where I'm seeing the power dynamic with Hamlet, particularly, uh, you know, and he's very forceful with her. He grabs her hair, he directs her head. And, and, and that's where I sort of saw the, the, yeah, the power dynamic reversing between them as opposed to what you might see outside of the chamber. Uh, and then even when Claudius comes in, you know, it's the hands on the shoulder and she tenses instantly. You see her, you know, almost being con- like, well, being actually physically controlled by and at the at the mercy of these two men. Right. And that echoes the line about um, that Hamlet has about him paddling his fingers into her neck um, and calling her his mouse. I guess I'm sort of on. I think it's blurry and I don't I, I think it's. Both, because there are, there are interesting things where there, there are parallels with Ophelia. Um, the most obvious one to me was that they're both, that Ophelia at the play was, um, in, in a green dress. And Gertrude in her pajamas is also wearing green. Um, and so to me, that was like an instant sort of connection, especially since we're on a black stage where Hamlet is in black and white. So those colors really pop. And then, of course, there's, you know, Hamlet actually straddles her on the bed for, like, a minute. On the other hand, I didn't find it, in some ways, I didn't find it that, sorry, the other um, Ophelia one is that when he collapses onto her, onto her lap, it's very much like how he's sitting on, or leaning on Ophelia's lap in, uh, in the play. On the other hand, I didn't find it that, I felt like they, they played up this sort of child in him, and... The, the sort of echo of what their relationship once was to the point that I didn't, for the most part, even though there are those sort of incesty suggestions, I didn't find it incesty. That even when they're rolling around on the bed, to me, at that point, Hamlet has sort of reverted to this sort of childish version of himself. That to me, I could imagine that, you know, he was comfortable in that room because as a kid, maybe he went and he played with his parents, you know, and he's sitting on the floor and him sitting on the floor is like the kind of thing you might do as a child and you're in your parents' room and you're sitting on the floor and you're comfortable with them. And then when he gets that vision of where, where the ghost appears and he sees his mother and his father and he's sitting on the ground, it's like this memory or callback to like this, fa- this family unit that once was. And so to me, it was an, like, a, it, I didn't see it as an, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. I mean, I, I think you're right that those are parallels in there and they're deliberate. But I guess I thought that they tempered it enough that I didn't find it like that beautiful. I'll say you one just... more thing and then I will be silent on this. I feel like I've made my views clear. 
I don't disagree with you that there's that childlike element at all. In fact, I think that that's part of what makes it eatable. You know, this Hamlet is really preoccupied with taking his father's place and growing into his father's place. I mean, he signals that fairly on when he's wearing that crown on his head and he says to, uh, I, I think, Guildenstern, I lack advancement, you know? Yeah. This is a man who's very preoccupied with growing into the next Hamlet. And the idea that someone has usurped his father's place, both on the throne and in his mother's bed, is, I think, troubling for him. And I don't necessarily think he wants to sleep with his mother. He's just very troubled by the idea that someone else is. You know, that's my father's yeah. place. If anyone should be inhabiting that, it's me. I'm not saying I should be. I'm saying that if anyone should be, it's me. Yeah, no, I I, I, I get that. And I mean, it's kind of interesting because well, we had this argument about Louder Than Bombs and whether or not it was was Oedipal or not. And you were like, I don't think it's really Oedipal. And then I explained it and you were like, oh, okay, maybe it is. But that's, again, another case of like, they just really admire their mother, not that they actually want to sleep with their mother. And interestingly this sort of i was reading stephanie's uh herrick's last name um review of louder than bombs in the village voice sorry no now she's at time and it revealed some really interesting things for me about the laertes ophelia dynamic sorry i we can come back to the gertrude thing i don't need to jump around too much but um what what she was talking about is she's talking about in louder than bombs that you know, the, the younger son, Conrad, w- wants to give this weird diary entry that he's written to the high school cheerleader. And he's this recluse kind of nerdy kid. And he wants to give it to the high school cheerleader. And his brother says, don't do it. She'll eat you alive, basically. And so anyway, in the review, she was saying, you know, that's the kind of advice where like you're in a fan, you're, you want to help out somebody in your family, but you don't really know what to say and you need to say something. And I felt like that's exactly what the scene at the beginning between Laertes and Polonius and Ophelia was like, like Laertes is telling Ophelia, you know, Oh, guard your treasure. And Ophelia is basically like rolling her eyes at him, but letting him talk at her. And there's like some affection there. And there's also some patronizing, like he's obviously doesn't know what he's talking about, but she sort of tolerates him. And then she, you know, I love the part where she pulls out the condoms and is like, you hypocrite, like whatever. I know you love me. And then Polonius comes in and does the, exact same thing in the sense that now he's giving Laertes advice and you know as with the advice all of the advice in that scene is like 90% bullshit and then there's you know 10% that's you know genuinely okay advice like Laertes is just trying to protect his sister but he's doing it in a horrible way and Polonius is you know trying to protect Laertes but most of his advice is like silly and then he you know he pulls out his wallet to give Laertes money and they're all just like rolling their eyes at at dad but you know there's a lot of affection to it and i thought i really liked the way they play that scene because that's a problematic scene because of how like misogynistic it is and it, one of the things that i think makes me really like this ophelia is how self-possessed she is in this i, I mean i've seen other ophelias where they had a similar kind of thing like in the national theater production in 2011 with rory Kinnear. um <laughs> Ophelia, I didn't use Nicholas Heitner. <laughs> it's also played where they're the two, the two of them are looking at each other like, oh, dad, we're just sort of silly. But I felt what they really did in this one, which I haven't seen done as so much, is that, you know, Laertes gives Ophelia advice and she's like, yeah, okay, whatever. And then Polonius comes in, he's like, well, I need to dispense my advice now. And then Laertes is like, yeah, okay, whatever. And then Laertes leaves and Polonius dispenses more advice to Ophelia, which is a bit scarier, but is also the same kind of like 90% bullshit, 10% right or genuine affection. And I really liked the way they played that family dynamic. Like they really felt like a family to me. And that's something that often does not happen in Hamlet productions. Yeah. Just that, that bit where, you know, Polonius goes into uh, neither a borrower nor a Linda B and they start reciting it because he's clearly said it 400 times before. And, um, (laughs) And the kind of eye-rolling, sort of lighthearted, oh, dad, mocking through most of it really highlights, you know, but above all, to thine own self be true, which is probably the most important part of Polonius's advice. And it's like you get this sense that even though they've kind of vaguely been ignoring the rest of it, but that they both of them 
hear that and sort of take it in and um yeah and then to just sort of follow that up with with um oh here have some cash is uh is really great it's it's, <laughs> it's he's such a dad in this production which i really like and it's so nice because you can play that family as either horrifyingly dysfunctional in its own way or as a beautiful foil to the wreck that is the royal family and i confess i kind of like it when they're when it's polonia's super dad you know polonia's <laughs> super dad and his two adorable children yeah, for sure. I will say, no matter how much any production tries to play it that way, when they're still fighting with some parts of the language, with Ophelia having to say, I shall obey you, my lord, with him watching the nunnery scene, and then afterwards being like, look, don't have to tell me what happened, heard everything. It's still, like, I don't think any production can or has that I've seen successfully, like, overcome that. Um, and, and like every production I've seen chooses to include that. So at the end of the day, like they can be joking and they can have this family dynamic, but it's also like the two men and then Ophelia because she just lacks the same autonomy and power that Laertes and Polonius have. Yeah, it's the same kind of, especially in a modernized, sort of vaguely modern set production, it's the same kind of issue that you have with Much Ado About Nothing with uh, Leonardo. I mean, obviously it's much more violent in Much Ado About Nothing, but like, yeah, a modern production of Much Ado with Leonardo, like basically going, oh, I love you, and then going, uh, oh no, you slipped around and now you should die because you're my daughter and you've disgraced me. Um, it's really hard to reconcile that. And yeah, I guess that's just one of the limitations of the text. Well, okay, so this is not about these guys specifically, but one of the things that I felt was maybe a problem as far as translating it to film was I didn't really get the sense that Denmark was a prison and that Hamlet was trapped there. And I feel like it might have worked better on stage because if there, if there, if Hamlet, because what, what you see a lot of that I thought was quite effective is you see, there are so many characters coming and going, you know, they come in and they bring news and then they leave and they're dispatched and they come in and they bring news and they leave. And it really emphasizes the fact that everybody is coming and going from this kingdom except for Hamlet. But I think on a stage, if, if Hamlet is actually like on that stage and that it's like this one room, you would have felt more of a sense of it being trapped. And it's basically this idea that Nicholas Heitner said in his, in this talk that he gave about Shakespeare, where he was saying, quite intelligently, I thought that the difference between film and theater is that in film, a room is just a room. And in theater, a room is always a, re- a metaphor for something else. And I feel like there are a lot of things that they were going for with that room as being a metaphor that you could maybe to some degree intellectualize because you know that it was once a production and you know that you were supposed to read a production that way. But we're watching a film and to some degree, I feel like those things are lost and I'm thinking... It mostly made me go, oh, I bet that that would have been more strongly felt had I seen this in a theater and that maybe this would have worked more fully in a way that it isn't working here, including the fact that because they moved like where the hell does Hamlet's to be or not to be soliloquy go anyway. Right. But um, <laughs> they they use the, the first quarto place, I believe, where he's like about to. Where is it? I can't. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's an just, it's just before get thee to a nunnery. And it's also, they moved, you are a fishmonger around as well. So like they, they oh, moved a couple of things. Yeah. So it's, it's quite confusing. Um, yeah, it's just before get thee to a nunnery, but I'm pretty sure fishmonger comes after that. Uh, yeah, which is quite strange. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I quite liked the placement of it there just with with moving around the other scenes um just because it sort of started that whole sequence the um and it's the first time uh we see hamlet post encounter with the ghost as well like it's the first time we see him after he's talked about putting on an antic disposition and um and so for him to start that sort of phase of the of the play with to be or not to be kind of works that he's he's in his own head um a bit about about what he's heard and what he's seen. Yeah, I mean, I think I've heard some people complain. I think I was reading reviews that complained about, you know, he's about to enact his plan, so why is he stopping now to suddenly, you know, meditate on life and death? And 
again, I think this is something that might have worked better on stage because they do have that line about how he spends four hours pacing around the lobby every day. And if he was stuck on stage and the stage was clearly like the lobby and he'd been there for, they could make it seem as though, you know, he had been there for two hours. Like you could see that if you have been like pacing for two hours, you could eventually end up having this philosophical, you know, soliloquy in a way that is maybe less credible in the sense where it's like he's about to enter the room and then he has this soliloquy. I would say I quite liked the, uh, the, the order as well. I agree with Caitlin. I think, uh, that it, especially with the the choice they made of the extreme close up for to be or not to be, it allowed it to carry some momentum and energy into nunnery and then fishmonger, and uh, just just allowing those back to back, I think, allowed the energy to build. And I and I do want to jump. I'm sure other people want to talk on this point, but I want to jump back to uh, Alex's point, asking about uh, that it didn't feel like a prison, and I and I thought about that too while watching it, but part of me. Part of me uh, thinks that it, it was successful mostly in just having Hamlet be so out of place in the set, particularly for the large mid stretch where he's wearing the red body outline T-shirt. Uh, and then you see this slightly barren background uh, with, you know, the empty chairs or the or the blank walls. And he just seems so out of place and isolated in that setting that it it really did did seem to me you know, that it was a, that it was a prison, not in terms of, you know, spatial confines, but I mean, going back to his, the dialogue he says to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, right? That he could have more space in, in a nutshell. Uh, then that regardless of, you know, how it was, it was sort of an interesting paradox to me that in terms of how uh, vast and expansive the stage was, that there always seemed to be, you know, plenty of open space. He still seemed very much alone there. And I will say, like, I the one part where I do agree with you and I'm contradicting myself is that because I didn't feel this earlier, but I did feel it later is when he comes back from England and they have that scene where there's this the quote stage is covered in snow and it's shot from above and you see him in the hat and the backpack. Like, I really got the sense of feeling that, you know, he has really traveled like he was far away and now he's going back. To Denmark, like he could, he wanted to leave and go back to Wittenberg. He could have just gone back to Wittenberg, right? Like he has escaped, he has escaped the prison, basically. I mean, he, first he left, but then he, and then he escaped the murder and now he could do whatever he wants. And what does he do? He goes back to Denmark. And I think that was the first time for me that it, it, it hit that like he's free of the prison and he's going right back to it. And so it, at that point to me, it felt like it was more like a prison, even though it, I didn't get the same sense earlier on. Tangenting, what did we think of that being really the only moment where Fortinbras is present? I find the whole Fortinbras plot to be kind of boring and annoying and taking away from the um, much more interesting, absurd family drama. I, I did like the way they kind of kept enough of it for a sense that, you know, Denmark is in danger from within and without. And, I did just really kind of uh, like the the shot from above, the guy looking up, the, sort of watching the helicopters flying over. But I think cutting almost all of Fortinbras was was a good choice. I think I mean it's already three hours. Also, like it would have been <laughs> it would have been maybe a bit much to pack a whole other um, subplot into it. Yeah, yeah, I I agreed. I thought it was good. Plus, then you ended on the <laughs> super intimate close-up on Hamlet and Horatio, which was just beautiful. <laughs> I there's two real for did they boink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. That, that's an important question. Or is just, are they just in love? Who knows? Who will know? But, um, man, I was just like, I was watching that with my friend and we were just like, wow, this is, this is a beautiful moment right here. And, um, yeah, you didn't have to have Fortinbras come in and ruin it. And that's why I found the edits for Fortinbras so interesting because it was really the only major cuts they made, I think. So you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it felt like they kept in, you know, pretty much everything else through the early acts. Uh, which is another reason I think it gave a lot of, I always felt they had like a lot of space and time that it, didn't feel constrained in trying to, you know, really drive it forward. And like, like the, the director gave room to the actors to, you know, sort of fully explore each of the speeches and each of the scenes that, that I mean, 
yeah, probably something had to go. And I agree that I don't think I felt like I lost a lot with uh, Fortinbras being uh, cut. They also cut the bullshit explanation for how Hamlet ended up back in Denmark, which involves pirates. So, like, we're all glad that's gone. Um, <laughs> and they cut the the one cut that I was sort of like, I'm not sure I agree with this, is they cut the explanation of why Rosencrantz and Guildenstern die. Mm-hmm. We get a one line of Horatio, of Horatio reading that letter being like, so Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And David Tennant being like, they made love to that employment. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> and Harry should be like, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess they're dead. Um, no one cared about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in this production. It's true. It's fine. <laughs> um, but the reason this is like a little bit troubling for me is A, that's a little bit confusing. Because like, how did they die? I guess it doesn't matter. But And B, in this production, Horatio is very much 100% on Team Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Like, he plays the recorder with Hamlet. He makes fun of people with Hamlet. Whereas in some productions, Horatio is very much an outside observer. And in that scene, if you go through the whole explanation of how Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, Horatio is the only character who's like, Hamlet, you just killed two of your friends. Are you sure that that was an okay thing to do? And it basically cuts out the only moment in the play where, in text, Horatio questions Hamlet. And Uh, I kind of love that cut because it really changes the relationship between Horatio and Hamlet. Anyway. Yeah, so, I mean, I think... These are both related and why I would normally not want to cut that part with Horatio. And I also think Fortinbras is usually important as far as, you know, showing that this is a kingdom that they're in trouble and they're too busy in their family drama to see what's going on. I think that those cuts work here because they do a really good job of making it clear that they're like the architects of their own destruction in a way that is not necessarily always clear. Like sometimes it's just like, Oh, Denmark is, you know, rank. And, and it's like, it's sort of abstract as low. It's like a sick, it's sick, but not because, whereas in this, it's, it's not just that Denmark is sick. It's, it's sick because they're sick. And with that, with the whole sense of mirrors and the reflective floor, it's like Denmark is itself a reflection of them. And the fact that they can't not, not, not just that they can't get over their bullshit, but, in this case, it's like Claudius did something that fundamentally shook up the kingdom. He fundamentally changed everybody's lives, and there's just no going back from that. And there are a bunch of different reasons for why that is. I mean, part of it is that it prevented Gertrude and Hamlet from being able to properly grieve. And I think you, I really got a sense of that when she removes her wig in her closet, and you feel like, oh, this is somebody who's been really just keeping up appearances. And when she and Hamlet have that desperate hug, it's this other thing where it's like, these are people who just have not had the opportunity to grieve for somebody that was really important to them. And, you know, even the way that Laertes, you know, ends up, you know, killing himself to some degree by the fact that it's his own sword and the poison on his own sword. And that they're all sort of, you know, it's Gertrude drinking out of the cup that her husband poisoned, that there's this way in which I felt throughout the production that they are kind of the architects of their own destruction. And so you didn't need Fortinbras there to remind us of that because it's seeped into the whole thing. And I think the other thing that they do quite well with this is because it doesn't just, you know, go on autopilot in act four, that you actually continue to have character development. That one of the things that happens is that when Hamlet comes back, he's like a changed person. He's suddenly really comfortable and not because he's playing mad, but just because he's like, well, whatever. Um, and he's killed people, you know, he killed Polonius and that sort of like opened the door to killing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And, you know, he's, he's sort of unhinged in a way and that he keeps developing in a different way, just as Claudius, you know, is revealed to be more conniving than was maybe obvious at first. And, Gertrude is more vulnerable and and so is Ophelia that because they keep developing and you keep seeing the ways in which they're sort of what's going on there is affecting them that it it didn't matter so much that there wasn't Fortinbras there as a reminder that there was this external force because there was enough that they were internally you know causing destruction and not just a, like stop worrying about this start worrying about outside forces band together but just you know they're they just can't they can't they're in an emotional state where that just can't happen and things have fundamentally changed to the point that that 
that can't happen. Like they're just going to implode and what happens next is not really important. I really like Cornelia. They turned Cornelius into Cornelia and you have this woman of color playing this um, ambassador, this diplomat. And I was like right on. Um, It was just something that I really appreciated. That's about all I have to say, but I think it was really nice seeing a production that wasn't just, uh, you know, a bunch of white dudes walking around especially in a play that is so male and in which the two female characters, you normally only have Gertrude and Ophelia and they're very confined by the fact that they're women. So that was really cool to see. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good point to be just going jumping off on that is that they don't have a lot of dialogue, but Gertrude's, well, their presence, both of them have a really strong presence in this production. And in particular, Gertrude has a lot of, reactions to um claudius and we spend a lot of time on her reactions like where he's saying things that are like keeping up appearances and you know he just says kind of the wrong thing and she you know twitches or like shakes where he's like especially towards the end where he starts you know going oh you know this is what happens that you know uh something he's talking about bad things happening with in battalions coming in battalions and yeah soros don't come in spies but in battalions Right. And she's at this point, she's just like, stop talking. Like you're just digging your own grave. Like it's not like sorrows are just coming. It's like, you're the architect of this. And the way in which she responds where at first she's sort of like twitching, like "Ah, this is kind of not right, but I'm, I'm going along with it. And then it becomes increasingly less willing to go along with it. I think says a lot. You are absolutely right about that scene, but I think we just had a a slightly different interpretation of what Gertrude's reactions mean. Like for me, it was like, it wasn't so much that Claudius is saying the wrong thing is that this is the first time we see a public rift between Gertrude's policy and Claudius's policy, because it's like for Gertrude, this is the wrong thing to say because it's inciting Laertes against Hamlet, but that's exactly what Claudius wants to do. And you see Patrick Stewart give that wonderful sort of very small, tight smile in that scene. The crazier things keep getting between Hamlet and Laertes. He's like, this is playing exactly into my hand, which is exactly the opposite direction that Gertrude wants things to go in. Right. No, I think I agree with you, actually, in the sense that to me, when I say he says the wrong thing, I think it's he, what he says makes it harder for her to pretend like everything is OK, to pretend like he's just, you know, like he's her proper husband, like her like Hamlet isn't dead. Like she's going, you know, cause he looks just like Hamlet. He's a nice, he's a charming guy and she can it make every, you know, he just says some little thing. That's like a reminder that he's not Hamlet. And it be, it becomes more egregious when it's, you know, he doesn't have much, when it becomes clear that his concern for Hamlet Jr. Is, is not so genuine anymore. And that he's just like, Oh, it's too bad. He's gone mad. Madness isn't, is, or maybe that was about Ophelia that eventually she just, she can't keep pretending. She has to cope with the fact that this is in Hamlet. And so I think I, I, I don't like, I think I kind of agree with you that it's just that he says the wrong thing in the sense that it just twinges at her um, as opposed to it being like objectively wrong. I also read her as being just increasingly suspicious. Like she's nerve, very nervous in the first half. And then pretty much from the closet scene onwards, I just, there's these little moments where it's like she has a little flash of recognition of something. Like when Hamlet sort of says, Oh, I'm, I'm going to England. And she sort of says, yes. Oh, that is that, is that all settled? And she kind of looks up as if to say, why would Claudius be sending my son away without telling me or, you know, talking to me about it and then just yeah little little flashes of of Claudia says something and she looks up as if to be like okay this is this is pretty shady um what what's your game here and then it all sort of uh, comes together in the moment when she has the cup in her hand and he says Gertrude don't drink and in that moment it's like she sort of goes oh yeah okay I know what's happening now and um and we can probably argue about why she decides to drink at that moment instead of turn around and say, j'accuse, Claudius. I agree that that moment where she knowingly drinks the poison is very interesting, uh, particularly because she 
it, it, I think it comes from a purer place in her relationship with Hamlet. Uh, you know, I'm thinking back to the Cumberbatch Hamlet where Gertrude almost becomes conspiratorial with Hamlet, seems to understand where that he's, uh, that he's putting on the disposition and, and there's something else going on here. She seems utterly convinced that Hamlet has actually gone mad. Uh, and so is just looking out for him in, in a, in a concerned motherly way. And at that point, knowing what Claudius has done, just purely is, is just done and just downs the, downs the goblet and is, is willing to end it all in sort of a, a very bold act of suicide that I don't know why in this production, but I never got that from Ophelia. I this one, it, it, to me, it really felt like her death was accidental. I don't know if that's uh, something else anyone else shares. But in regard to Ophelia, the main thought that I kept having during Gertrude's monologue explaining her death was just: <laughs> I don't think this was a production in which it made it seem like, you know. They may have had a hand in her death or something else or, or like it was clearly suicide. But I just kept thinking as this monologue goes on and on and she keeps talking, you know, it's that thing where you're like, wow, you really know a lot of the specific details of this and you just didn't really do anything. It didn't, the production didn't make it seem any more so suspicious, but just the text itself, every time I listen to that, I'm like, all right five minutes of describing the specifics of her death. Like what, what were you doing? (laughs) What was everyone doing? But I don't know. (laughs) No, I think that you're totally right. That's one of the things that Greg Doran was saying on the audio commentary. Like, gee, Gertrude, you sure seem to know a lot about how she died. Well, also, and then a part of me is like, is Gertrude just trying to like make, use this flowery language to make Laertes feel better or something, because, you know, she talks about the long purples and all of the flowers that she has, but in the scene that she was just in, like she didn't actually have any of the flowers she thought she had the rosemary and the rue and the daisies. She just had a bunch of like ugly weed things. Um, And so, you know, is it true that all of a sudden she had beautiful flowers or is Gertrude just trying to like make ease the blow? I don't know. No, I think that's interesting because, I mean, one of the things that Caitlin and I were kind of discussing on on Twitter is whether there's some kind of, like, pact almost between Gertrude and and Ophelia. The sort of, like, I I loved a Hamlet pact. (laughs) Um, Because Ophelia, there's that moment where Ophelia keeps a rue and then also hands one to Gertrude. And there's this sort of, like, knowing look that, you know, maybe, I mean, I don't know what it is exactly, whether it's the implication that they've both used rue is an abortive or that maybe Gertrude has helped Ophelia with that in the past or I mean like who knows but just something about their this sort of um intimacy in their relationship which, which can't is like, better than I did which is funny because the first time in this production that we see Gertrude and Ophelia interact Gertrude actually doesn't seem to know Ophelia's name and seems uh, like if you if you look at that scene Gertrude goes Ophelia and then sort of looks a little bit questioningly as if like, did I get that right? And then goes, Mm. Oh, (laughs) Um, in this sort of waspy rich white lady way, when Ophelia touches her hand, Um, (laughs) like, Oh, I'm being touched. Oh. So the intimacy between them that develops in the second half of the play is all the more striking because in this production in the first half, it seems like they've literally never interacted. I don't know that it was um, with the Rue. I don't know that it was necessarily a, we personally have both used Rue as an abortive, but more just a um, a kind of a moment where two women who would know about this remedy sort of share a, an understanding, share a connection that, that the boys don't have. And perhaps, you know, like, like when she, she sort of pins the Rue over and she says something about, about it being grace or God's grace or something, and Gertrude just kind of smiles at her, it's uh yeah, it's. In, I mean, it's. It, I don't even know if it's on purpose. Like, I mean, I think Shakespeare knew his herbs, but um, it's uh, just an interesting little thing to think about, anyway. And yeah, I love the the closeness they develop in the second half, though. So you get the sense when Gertrude kneels down at um, Ophelia's grave and says, "You know, I wanted you to marry my son." That she's absolutely being sincere. That she sort of saw Ophelia as a way of getting Hamlet um, out of his dead dad funk. The other thing I'm not sure how to read the Rue is because 
this is a production in which condoms exist and <laughs> Ophelia is aware of them. So <laughs> like it seems foreseeable that she could have like like okay, we established she blanked Hamlet, but in this production it's not like a it doesn't seem like such a life or death thing. Like it could have just been pleasant. <laughs> Um, because she seems to know what condoms are. They seem to exist. She clearly knows where to find them. <laughs> In her brother's luggage. Yeah. What? Laertes's luggage. That's where you find the condoms. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. Next part of this discussion will be available to download on Monday. To keep up with the latest episodes, subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W.com.